Good one to say good morning, and I'm glad that you're with us here on our Global Ministries Weekend. It's uh, my opportunity to introduce our special speaker this weekend. I have known Pastor Bill Sundberg for well over 20 years, and we have served together in the local church, as well as we've served uh, doing a project in Toronto in 1999 where over 9,000 students came together from around the world to a congress that we put on there. And one of the things I have really appreciated and been inspired by Pastor Bill is his love for the community. And the Church of the Nazarene, Emmanuel Church of the Nazarene, is one of our church partners that we've been working with. And myself and Pastor Steve were able to go out and see this Refresh project, to see the great work that they're doing in their ministries. And it's so encouraging to see a, ch- a church that is not just in the community, but that it is for the community. So I would like to, you to give a big Calgary Center Street, welcome to our speaker and my friend, Pastor Bill Sundberg. Okay. I just got a text from one of the other campuses who said, I have never seen any better looking men in my life together on stage. Wow. Wow. But I'm really the better looking one. Um, Let's, uh, let's pray for Bill as he brings the word this morning. So, Father, we thank you again for your rich, rich blessings upon us. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint Bill's lips as he brings forth the word and the challenge and the encouragement that you've laid on his heart. We thank you, God, for our partner church, Emmanuel in Toronto, and Pastor Bill and the team, and ask, Lord, that your blessings would be upon them. And, Father, open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, Wayne. Um... I was in the atrium after the first service and Pam came up to me and she said, I've been telling Wayne for years he's got the best hair, but she said, I think yours is better. (laughs) And your beard, your beard is better too. Now those are Pam's words, not mine. Those are Pam's words. And it's not a contest, Wayne, I don't want Wayne to feel bad. But if you agree with Pam, you could text the word Bill to the the church number. Okay, don't do that. I'm told that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen. (laughs) Probably get in trouble. But thank you for the invitation and to be with you today. I have enjoyed a relationship. Our church has enjoyed a relationship with Center Street Church for years, though this is my first time here. So it's good to be with you. It was two years ago. uh, Mike Shore brought a... a, uh, a youth mission team that came to our location, slept on the floor of our church, and involved in ministry in our community, and that was a wonderful thing. Last year, we were the beneficiaries of a generosity grant, and that was a beautiful investment in the ministries and helping us develop our ministries in, in the Jane Finch and Jane Shepherd part of our, of our city. And then now, which you've seen a little bit about the Refresh Painting Project, and uh, we're, going, we're looking forward to an ongoing, long-term relationship uh, on that project as well, and it's, it's been great. So thank you very much for your support. Thank you very much for the partnership. It's so good to be with you here today. I should start by telling you today that um, I, uh, I'm an Uber driver. I'm actually a pastor, but I'm also an Uber driver. Uh, it started when our, our youth leader, who was making his living at the time as an Uber driver, said, Pastor Bill, you would love this. You should do this because you get to meet a lot of people and talk to a lot of people. And it kind of started out as a joke, but I looked into it and I signed up for it. And now I'm an Uber driver. Now, I had to tell you, in 2018, I probably only drove uh, maybe five or six different times throughout the whole year. So it's not something I do a lot. 
But I love it because I get to learn things and hear things and meet people and kind of be anonymous sitting in the front seat and hear whatever goes on in the back seat because uh, that people will tell uh, their uh, Uber driver anything, really, but when you're listening and they don't know you're listening, you can hear about everything, and it's a, a lot of fun. I remember the first day I was, uh, I was riding, and the way it works, you have this app, and all of a sudden it pops up and says, drive over there, pick somebody up, and then you swipe it, and it tells you where to take them. And this time, I, 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 it popped up, and it said, this time I was supposed to go pick up some food to deliver it to someone, Uber Eats. It was the first time doing this. Now, i got to tell you something about Uber Eats before I finish that story. Um, you may be surprised to find out that um, of all the places you could order food on Uber Eats, in my experience, about half of the time, 50% of the time, it's McDonald's that people want delivered to their house. That there was one time where I got to a McDonald's and picked up the food, and then you swipe it to figure out where you're supposed to deliver it, and I was, kept thinking, there's got to be something wrong with this, and I, you know, sometimes there's a glitch. The address was the building right across the street. And the gentleman who I was delivering it to could literally out his window see the McDonald's. But instead of walking downstairs and crossing the street, he called me to come and pick it up and bring him his food. But on my first day, um, I uh, said, pick, the first time I picked up food, I had to go to one of these high-rise high apartments downtown up to the 17th floor to deliver this food. Now, the guy knew I was coming. He knew I was coming because he ordered it. He knew I was coming because he could see the little car you know, icon coming close to his house. He knew I was coming because I had to buzz into his building, and he knew when I arrived and got onto the elevator. But when I got up there and knocked on the door, he opened it and was wearing only his underwear. And he just makes eye contact, just reaches out, grabs the bag of food, and closes the door. And I thought, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> there was another guy who stayed downtown a little bit too late, had a meeting, business meeting the next morning. He didn't feel like he brought the right clothes, and so um, he tried to convince me to trade pants with him. <laughs> and I'm thinking, is this, is, this, is this a service the other drivers provide? Because this... This wasn't in the training. I could put an extra pair of pants in the trunk if I need, but I, I just, um, I didn't trade pants with him. But when he get out, got out just for his trouble, he gave me a, a $5 bill for, for giving me a hard time. And, and uh, it, was a, it was a U.S. dollars, and that kind of explained everything. So, um, <clears throat> so I am an Uber driver. I do it once in a while because it's really, it really is good. I'm mean, as a pastor and as a church, we want to be relevant to the world around us. We want to really connect with the world around us. And I get to hear and learn a lot of things about my city and about the people in my city. And I thought that was why I was doing this, because it was kind of a cool way to be anonymous, but still hear and learn and, uh, and love my city that way. That's why I thought I was an Uber driver until April 23rd, 2018. I know you remember that day. You don't think you remember that day, but I know you remember that day because that's the day uh, a man rented a van and drove down Young Street in Toronto on the sidewalk. And 10 people were killed that day and 16 others rushed to the hospital with serious injuries. That's not very far from my church. 
And so later that day, as soon as I could, I got down to Young Street and tried to just be there. I just felt like that's where the pain is. That's where I just needed, I felt like I needed to be there. But there was, the police had everything blocked off and, the, you know, you couldn't go. And there were for blocks and blocks and blocks. And, and you could just stand and look and, and it, everything was quiet and no one was saying anything. And it was, it was nighttime. So all I could do was pray, God, bless these people. Take away their pain. Help us to serve our community as best as we can. And I went home. But I told my wife that night, I said, I just feel like I need to be back there again tomorrow. So I went back to Young Street the next day, about lunchtime, and, and the police had been doing their thing, and so, um, you know, they, the, 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 the roadblocks were kind of backing up block by block as they processed each block, and so there was a part of Young Street where I could actually walk up and down, and, and as I walked down the sidewalk of Young Street the day after the attack, you could actually see the tire marks from the van on the sidewalk, and little paint spots where the police were marking and tracking its direction. And as I walked along that path, there was this real full, this sense of heaviness, this sense of, I mean, you could just feel, it was a weird thing in a, in a busy street of Toronto, an eerie silence. And I just felt my heart breaking and saying, God, how can we love this community? How can we find the people who are really hurting? How can we, and then the thought crossed my mind. I'm an Uber driver. So I went in my car, turned on my Uber app, and just sat there on Young Street waiting for someone who needed a ride. And for the next six hours, I would find someone who would get in the car, I would drive them their 10 or 15 minute trip, turn off the app, come back to Young Street, turn it back on again, pick up someone else, and keep going back and forth and back and forth. You can't randomly walk up to someone as a stranger on the street in a situation like that and say, hey, how you doing? Is everything okay? But when you're an Uber driver, and they get in your car, the first thing you can say is, hey, how you doing? And they'll tell their Uber driver anything. I remember one guy told me the story about how his girlfriend, one of her best friends was one of the victims, and she was so overwhelmed, not only for, for the sense of loss of her girlfriend, but the sense of, uh, you know, just how close it struck to her because she's usually with her girlfriend on the sidewalk and could have been her, and just kind of feel the heaviness of that. I remember there was another girl from South Korea who was there and got in the car and she said, my family from Seoul, South Korea, keeps calling all day. I have all kinds of family from back in South Korea and they keep calling and keep calling. And uh, I could hear in her conversation that the pain and the worry and, and, and all that goes with that spread all around the globe. And I'll never remember the girl I picked up at Young and Shepherd who got in the car and for the 11-minute ride the whole time all she did was sit in the back seat and weep. And I would just hand her a tissue, another tissue, another tissue. I'm convinced that at any given time, we're surrounded with people whose lives are broken, whose homes are broken, who don't know how to navigate the challenges of life or Maybe the world is crashed in around them. Sometimes when a, when a big, obvious event like what happened in April of 2018, it makes it so clear to see, but the rest of the time, it's just as obvious. It's just as, it's just as real that we're surrounded by people who have pain. The question is, how do we get from here to there? 
How do we get from where we are to the place where people are suffering? Because there are so many barriers that keeps us from them. Sometimes it's yellow police tape. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's circumstances of life. Sometimes it's our fear of getting out of our comfort zone. Sometimes it's a kind of a misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God is. But, but always there are barriers. And Jesus says to us, go. How do we get there? How do we break down those barriers? One of my favorite scriptures is from Mark chapter 2. I want to read you the first couple verses uh, from Mark chapter 2. Here's what it says. A few days later, when Jesus entered again Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? What a beautiful place that would have been. I mean, I hope, I hope God blesses this time of preaching the word this morning, but to be there when Jesus was preaching the word, I mean, I would have loved that. And it wasn't just me or us there. It's, it was standing room only. To be in a place where there are so many people hungering after what Jesus has to say, so many people hungering after the presence of God, what a beautiful place that would be. That's not just a biblical thing. I'm sure you've been at places like that. Wayne talked about uh, the event that we worked on together in 2000, in 1999. It was one of the first events in what was then called the Air Canada Center. Last night, of course, by the way. Go Raptors. Anybody go Raptors? In that same room where the Raptors we're playing basketball in what used to be called the Air Canada Center, now a Scotiabank Center. We had this event where almost 10,000 youth filled this arena and we would worship together. And when you worship together with 10,000 people singing out praises to God, filling this arena in what an amazing event that was. And so many times as we were just sitting there worshiping, I would just be standing there singing with tears streaming down my cheeks. It was holy ground. It was a special place. It was overwhelming. God visited us in such a special place. Just like we sang, holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And Air Canada Center became a holy place. I remember another time when I felt that on a much smaller scale. It was when my mom just was coming to the end of her life. My mom loved Jesus. And my mom loved music. She would have loved being a part of this choir and orchestra today. She taught our kids, my my two brothers and two sisters, the five of us, both to love music and to love God. And when we were gathered around her hospital room, just the five of us, watching the monitors as they slow down, we started to sing mom's favorite hymns. I'm pretty sure it is well with my soul because that was one of her favorites. But as we sang in a hospital room, Tears were streaming down our cheeks because it became holy ground in the presence of Jesus. I mean, we know what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus when the Holy Spirit comes in a beautiful way. And if we were there on that day when the house was so full, it was standing room only, you couldn't get inside, and Jesus is there preaching, ah, my goodness, I would have elbowed the person next to me and say, oh, today we're experiencing the kingdom of God. This is a beautiful place. But that's not the end of the passage. Verse 3 starts, through verses 3 through 5. Some men came, 
bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And as you read the rest of the passage, Jesus then healed the man. He picked up his mat and he walked and went home. And people said, we have never seen anything like it. Can you imagine what that would have been to be in this house, standing room only, listening to Jesus, and then there's some men, four. It says four of them. So there were probably a few more than four men who get this idea in their head. Hey, I've got a friend. We've got a friend who needs to be in this place in the presence of Jesus. And more, more importantly, we've got a friend who won't get here unless we do something to help him. He couldn't walk, so they carried him. The house was full and the door was blocked, so they put a hole in the roof. Lowered him to the feet of Jesus. And to see men who would say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure my friend comes to Jesus. I'm going to do whatever it takes to remove whatever barrier there is between him and Jesus. I'm going to dig a hole through the roof. I'm going to carry him. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get him to Jesus. And then to see someone, while Jesus is preaching, someone come down and, to the feet of Jesus from the roof above in a hole in the roof. If I was standing there, would have elbowed the person next to me and said, wow, today we're experiencing the kingdom of God. July of 2007, I came to church. My wife and I and kids were coming to church and, uh, you know, unlocked the door and everybody goes to do their things, set up for Sunday school worship team and all that kind of thing. Couldn't help but notice um, in front of the church were a number of police cars right across the street from the church. And yellow police tape was kind of you know, strung at different places. So I you know, did the nosy pastor thing. It's part of the training. Um, went outside and found one of the police officers and said, can you tell me what's going on? This is our church right here. Is there any way we can help, any way we can pray or support, whatever we can do? This is what I found out. The night before uh, was a Saturday night in July, and there was a birthday party, which is a great time for a birthday party. The party was out in the backyard. There was food. There was music. They were expecting about uh, 20, 25 people, family and friends. But because it was a summer night, and because there was food, and because there was music and a beautiful night, uh, uninvited guests started showing up, friends of friends of friends. And, and what was thought to be a 20, was expected to be a 20 to 25 uh, uh, person party ended up having 60 or 70 people, something like that in a small backyard. Of the uninvited guests, there were members of two rival gangs in the Toronto area that had, at the time, were in a big feud. And, and um, during the party, they just started, the, the tension started rising, and it's hard to believe in a small room, packed, a small yard packed with that many people, they started shooting at each other. There was an 11-year-old boy, his name was Ephraim Brown, who was at that party, and um, it was his cousin's birthday, by the way, and uh, he had earphones in and listening to an MP3 player while sitting on the back fence, and because he was listening to music, he wasn't really paying attention to what was going on, he couldn't hear everything very well, and as everybody else in the party heard the tension rising between these people, the two gangs kind of started to kind of back away, he wasn't paying attention, and when the shots rang out, Ephraim was killed on the spot. 
To hear that from the police officer literally on the doorstep of the church, our church's address is 1875 Shepherd Avenue. Um, Ephraim lived at 1876 Shepherd Avenue, and the party was at 1880 Shepherd Avenue, right across the street from the church. And everybody who came to church that morning couldn't help but ask, what's all the police, what's all the police? And the story was shared over and over and over again. It was just an emotional Sunday morning, like getting punched in the gut. We had a special speaker that day, which was fortunate because I'm not sure I could have gotten through it. I was basically crying the whole service and tears. And when it, just before the end of the service, someone handed me a note from one of, the, one of the members of the church that said, Pastor, I really think we need to be outside. And I knew that note didn't come just from her, but that's what God wanted us to do. So when the special speaker motioned over to me and said, come on, Pastor Bill, can you, uh, uh, can you help us, uh, can you close the service? I just came up to the podium and I said, we're not going to pray our closing prayer in the building today. I want to invite you to join me outside, and we'll pray. I'm not going to pray out loud, but we'll just hold hands. We'll pray silently. We'll pray with, uh, you know, you can pray for two minutes. You can pray for 20 minutes. Let's just hold hands, bow our heads, and pray for our hurting community. We walked out to the sidewalk, and a beautiful thing began to happen. Neighbors from across the street started coming out of their houses, coming across the street and holding hands with us. And the church and the community began to pray together, and God broke down barriers between us. As we went through the following weeks and throughout the summer, it was an amazing thing that God did in our community and how it just kind of, uh, God just broke down barriers in our community and, and just did some amazing things. People from the church started bringing food and we would take it across the street and, and share it with people in the neighborhood and people in the neighborhood who didn't know each other's names started to get to know each other and, and help each other and neighbors started helping neighbors and supporting neighbors and food was shared and meals and all that kind of stuff and, and, and as a result of all this, our, our, our community was transformed and it was an amazing experience that summer as how, how people came together. But at the end of the summer, people would say things like this. This has been an amazing experience. And our world is very different, but it's too bad it had to start because of tragedy. I wonder if we could figure out a way to accomplish the same thing, but with something positive. At the same time, I had a good relationship. The, 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 house, the people who live across the street, that, that collection of houses is from Toronto Community Housing, much like your Calgary housing. And I got to know the, the, the uh, area supervisor of that, and we worked together. And he would often give us money during that summer so we could have barbecues for the neighborhood. And, and, and so we were working together. And at the end of the summer, as people were saying those things, he and I were also saying, we need to figure out how we can work together more. To make a long story short... Um, when we were trying to figure out how to create the same dynamics out of something positive, what came out of that was this program called Refresh, where we paint people's homes. To be honest, the reason why we're painting people's homes is because as I was talking to the, to the director of housing, everything else was being done by, by some kind of maintenance crew or some or, uh, you know, unionized group, and the only thing that we could do without getting into trouble was paint. So he said, let's paint, and here's how it works. You know, we'll knock on someone's door and say, can we come and paint your house? We're not going to paint for you, but we want to paint with you. And can we come by and do that? And on the day of the painting, we might be painting five different houses, have 40 or 50 volunteers show up, and we'll send like, well, at the beginning of the day, we'll say, we're going to send eight people to this house, eight people to that house, eight people to that house. You don't know each other yet, but the people who are, whose house we're painting, they, they know you're coming. So here's the information you need, and you go there. So you knock on their door. You say, hi, we're here to paint your house and they welcome you in. The family is supposed to work with you. And so here's what happens. You start working together. You set everything up, move all the furniture, and start painting, and you start by saying, hey, what's your name? How long have you lived here? How many kids do you have? 
That's about five minutes into the day. What are you going to do the rest of the day? Find other things to talk about. And so you just talk. And you get to know each other. What's your favorite music? Where are you from? One of the things we, tell, we, we ask the family, say all the work is being done by volunteers and all the materials are free to you. But here's what we want you to do. Besides helping with the work as much as you're physically able, we want you to provide a lunch for you, your family, and for the workers. That's it. And we're going to put our brushes down and rollers down. We're going to just gonna do community, spend time together and eat. They will often ask, almost always ask, well, we don't know who the volunteers are. What should we make? What kind of food? We don't know what they like. And here's our, here's our, our answer. Make food that celebrates your culture of origin. And Toronto is one of the most multicultural thing, cities, and so if you're painting all week long, um, you might on Monday get a, a, a lunch from Jamaica, and on Tuesday maybe a lunch from Somalia, and on Wednesday maybe a lunch from Syria or, 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 or um, Nigeria, or uh, my friend Titi over there, I sit next to her, or maybe on Thursday someone just orders pizza. That happens too. And we celebrate culture. And we celebrate the family. And then we get back to work and we finish the work in the afternoon. And then at the end of the day, we have a debrief where we ask five questions. And we say, did you like what we did today? Can you tell us what you like? But they'll tell us good things. And we like that. But they'll also say sometimes, well, you did this and I wish you did it this way instead of that way. And we learn and get better. The second question we ask is, what, can, what do you love about your community? What can we celebrate about this neighborhood? And they'll tell us, oh, I love this, I love that, and I love the people and love the relationships. And that gives us the right to answer, ask the third question. Well, um, this whole week is about neighbors helping neighbors. And by the way, when we paint somebody's house on Monday, we'll say, hey, we're painting your neighbor's house on Tuesday. Can you help us paint your neighbor's house? And then on Tuesday, can you help us paint your neighbor's house? So it kind of becomes a neighbors helping neighbors thing. And so the third question is, neighbors have been helping neighbors to paint houses this week. But if we keep helping each other, are there other things that we could do together? Other things that we could address, not for the landlord or for the police or for the mayor, just people helping people. And they'll start to tell us, oh, we need this. Oh, we need that. Oh, we need this. Fourth question is simple. Would you be willing to help us? Would you be willing to help us so we can work together on this? And then the fifth question is, why is this important? What motivates us to do this? And that's important because as they're thinking about whether they're going to say volunteer, I want to be a part of this, and many of them do say yes, um, they begin to think about their motivation, but they also ask us what our motivation is. And we can answer it. You see, if I send eight people to a stranger's house at the beginning of the day and you knock on the door and you say, hey, I'm here, we want to talk to you about how much God loves you, guess what they're going to do? Close the door. I mean, I love Jesus, but I'm still going to probably close the door. I mean, I'm busy that day or had other things in mind and, you know, what's going on. And... But if you paint their house, talk to them all day, eat lunch together, celebrate their culture, and get to just, at the end of the day, when we get to that question and they ask us, what's your motivation? And you can answer it however you want, but if you say, I just wanted you to know how much God loves you. They'll probably say, and often do say, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Our motto is, it's not about the paint, but it is about the paint, but it's not about the paint. It's about the paint, but it's, it's not about the paint, but it is about the paint. 
It's not, about, it's not about the paint because it's about the relationships. We want to get to know people. We want to bear, break down those barriers so we can, we can, you can spend time with people and love them in their homes. It is about the paint because if you don't paint well, they're never going to invite you back and you'll never get to their neighbor's house. And by the way, we've painted over a thousand houses now and we're proud of that. Um, but it's... It's not about the paint because we learn about our neighborhood. And as a church, when we're trying to figure out how can we best serve our neighborhood, we don't have to guess because we've asked them. And if you paint 20 or 30 or 40 homes in a week and ask them what needs do you have in your neighborhood and would you help us do it, by the end of the week, you've got a good idea of what the needs are in your neighborhood and you have some people who will help you. And it changes everything. It's not about the paint. But it is about the paint but it's not about the paint. Um, It's not about being an Uber driver, but it is, but it's not. It's about finding ways to get from where we are to where the pain is. It's about finding ways to break through those barriers and showing God's love in places that we otherwise wouldn't be able to. That's what Compassionate Ministries is all about. That's what loving our world is all about. Quick story, I, my time is gone, but quick story. One of the neighborhoods we painted in, um, in the Toronto area is in Mississauga, not in our right immediate area, but we've kind of partnered with other neighborhoods over the years. There was a neighborhood that had a lot of tension between the residents and the police for a lot of issues. And it really was a, a difficult situation in that neighborhood. Refresh came to their neighborhood and we started, and we scheduled to paint, and guess what? I don't know who arranged this, but some of the police officers from, the na- from the, that part of the city came and volunteered and painted that day. I didn't know till later, they came, obviously plain closed. I didn't know till later that many of them brought their guns because that's how nervous they were about this neighborhood. Beginning of the day, there was tension. There were people saying, I don't want them in my house. But by the end of the day, the same lady who was saying that and the same people who were saying that said, man, I learned about these people and now I wish I'd spent the day with them because now I understand them better. I say that's just a small example to say how God can break down barriers with a paintbrush. If you can do it with a paintbrush, you can do it with a broom, you can do it with a, a toolbox, you can do it with a kitchen, you can do it with a cup of coffee. It's just about finding ways to get from where we are through the barriers to where people are. So here's my last question. What would happen if everybody here today decided to spend one day painting with Refresh this summer? It's in July. I mean, we got 365 days out of the year. What if we spent one just doing what I just talked about, going to someone's home, painting, eating lunch, loving them? Imagine what God could do. Or what if, what if, you know, in that process, we were motivated to, to just live our life on mission, not just on that one day painting, but every day, finding ways to break through barriers and share love in places we couldn't otherwise do it. Imagine what God could do. And when that day comes, I'll elbow the person next to me and I'll say, today, we experienced 
the kingdom of God. May God bless you.